Hello and welcome to the PopBreak.com's official Oscars podcast, hosted by Marissa Carpico and Matt Taylor. everyone. This is Marissa Carpico, the film editor at thepopbreak.com. I'm here with our TV editor, Matt Taylor. Say hello, Matt. Hi, everyone. And uh, one of our writers, George Heffler, who I always depend on to um, write a quick reaction to something. Say hello, George. Hello, George. All right. Um, so we're here today to talk about uh, the 2002 Oscars. Um, we were all alive then, um, which is great. <laughs> There's a couple a couple shocks recently with the 1994 situation, um, and uh, yeah, so the ceremony took place on March 23rd, 2003, at the Kodak Theater in Los Angeles. Uh, Steve Martin was the host. Um, the winner that year is Chicago, um, the musical starring um, Renee Zellweger and um, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Queen Latifah, tons of people, um, and it was adapted from a. Uh, the 1975 Candor Ebb, Candor and Ebb play, um, also uh, partially written by Bob Fosse, and then um, he was told to buy it by uh, Gwen Verdon, um, which is just like great musical history. But also while re- researching this, I didn't realize that there is um, an original play from 1926, just like a play play, not a musical. It's by Maureen Dallas Watkins. Um and it was adapted into a silent film in 1927, um, and then that was made into a, it was made into a couple movies. Um, there's one called Roxy Hart, starring Ginger Rogers, which I now that I know it exists, I I really should see. Um, and the version that we're talking about was released on December 27th, 2002. Um, it won six of the 13 awards it was nominated for. Uh, it was made for 170 million, or no, it made 170 million dollars um, domestic, and was made for 45. So it was a big hit. Um, it stayed in theaters for a long time. Um, I'm going to start with George. When did you first encounter Chicago? Um, what are your thoughts on it? A little bit. Uh, so, I have a pretty big history with theater. Um, my brother and I both did it uh, in school, and my grandmother is uh, actually a producer at an off-Broadway theater in New York, and uh, we go see a ton of shows. Um, So I am pretty familiar with theater at large, and so I actually saw a stage production of Chicago that was really incredible, Um, but it was definitely not (laughs) as good as this movie um, because I got to say that all of the actors in this really blow it out of the water. Um, I mean, Catherine Zeta-Jones is so good in it. Uh, Renee Zellweger is great. And I'm really not a huge Renee Zellweger fan, but I think she does a good job in this movie. Um, And, you know, this is probably one of my favorite movie musicals. Um, I think it's got a little bit of something for everybody. And, uh, you know, that's not something you always see. Sometimes these uh, movie musicals like uh, Camelot or something can be a little more insular (laughs) and harder to penetrate. So uh, I think that this is really great for a kind of a wide release sort of thing. Wow. Okay. Uh, That is that is very cool about all that theater stuff. I had I had no idea. Um, I feel like I'm going to have to hit you up for tickets or something at some point. (laughs) We'll talk Um, about there. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, what about you? 
Yeah, um, so in our 1994 episode, I said how Forrest Gump is probably the movie I've seen most in my life, but, like, mm. this is probably the, the second movie I've seen most in my life. Um, uh, I also come from, like, a like a Broadway family. Like, we're not, we don't, we're not producers or anyone, unfortunately, but, um, like, just, I've, like, was going to shows from a very young age. Both my parents are really into musicals, especially, um, and uh, I saw Chicago for the, fir- the movie for the first time. When it came out, not in theaters, on DVD, like, after it had won Best Picture. And I remember liking it, but I was, like, young at the time, so I don't think it really stuck out stuck out to me as anything special. I just, like, sort of experienced it. And then I watched it again in high school, um, and it was, like, life-changing. Like, I was just like, this movie is so, so good. It's my brother's favorite movie of all time. Like, he's a- he actually desperately wanted to, like, make an appearance on this podcast um, to talk <laughs> about it. He, um... Like, so we watch it, like, once a year, basically, together. Um, I, it's just, like, it's a perfect musical, I think. Like, a perfect movie musical. Like, every song is just really well executed. The directing's great. Every performance is wonderful. Um, I saw the musical on Broadway, like, two or three years ago. Um, and I actually, like, think the movie improves on it in every way. Like, um, the the play's really... uh, is really strong, but I think the musical just knows how to really like drive up the excess of it all, which makes the themes more prevalent. And I love it. Like I, I just think this is, in many ways, probably my favorite movie musical. And it's like a, such a controversial Best Picture winner in a lot of circles. And I think it's one of like the best Best Picture winners. Yeah, that's it's so fascinating to like um, hear you guys talk about like the experience with musicals and stuff because like such a um, such a stark contrast to from like a New York area upbringing to my LA upbringing where I was convinced that I didn't like musicals for whatever reason um, for much of my life. Which people listening to this now who have listened to this podcast are like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> I just <laughs> guess all I talk like... <laughs> about is musicals. Um, but I was convinced that I just didn't like musicals, even though I like loved all the Disney stuff and loved Sound of Music. Um, but I don't know. I just thought I wasn't into modern musicals. And then I saw this movie, which I saw it on like a, I saw it alone at a theater because my my mom um, threw these parties back in the day for for work where she would. Uh, have like a Halloween party and it, it was for graphic designers because she worked in the paper in the paper industry. Um, this is far afield, but it, it is context for what for what I'm talking about. Um, she like the, she did she she's done one where like she would give all these graphic designers a pumpkin, like deliver it to their office, and then they would bring it in for a pumpkin p- contest um, at the party. But she did a Chinese New Year um, party one year, and I helped her set up at the Grove Mall in L.A. Um, when it was still fairly new. And then um, I was sort of like, I didn't want to hang out at the party, even though often I would. So I went to the movie theater there and I went and saw Chicago because it was like a a big deal. It had been out for about a month by then. And I had heard it was good. And I was like, it was like me and like three other people in the theater. And I was like, it blew my hair back. I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. And like, truly, I attribute the watching this movie to being like, do I like musicals? And then, yes, the answer was yes, obviously, <laughs> uh, given everything I've said in every other podcast. So I, I think this movie's great. I, I haven't seen the play ever, actually, because even though I love the, the movie a lot, I mean, I've seen it dozens of times. And and like, I listened to that soundtrack to to death um, when I was a kid. Um, like, I just... I don't 
I don't know if I ever will think that the the play will live up to how much I love the movie. And I mean, based on what you guys are saying, like that sounds that sounds right. So I just don't want to like I've just never I've always wanted to preserve that 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 love basically. Um, but now that we've sort of talked about our first experiences with it, let's let's dive into it a little bit. Um, what's who favorite musical number? Uh, anybody? <laughs> let's actually, oh God, George, what's your favorite musical number? Uh, look, I mean. This might be a little bit of a controversial choice because it's not the flashiest, but I'm going to go with Mr. Cellophane. Um, John C. Riley just breaks my heart in this movie. And uh, I think the man's a national treasure. And for him to get a little bit of a moment to shine and uh, to really swing for the fences with this, uh, this solo performance is really great. And uh, I think he really hits the nail on the head. So good on you, John. I mean, it's a great number, you know, um, the, all of the numbers are really exciting and, and this one works really well because of the editing basically of like him on the stage versus him, um, uh, like having real life experiences and being sort of ignored by, by Roxy. Um, absolutely. And I think that that's something the movie does really well, uh, as a whole, not just in this, um, in this particular performance, yeah. but, uh, kind of the flipping back and forth between the real life and, uh, fantasy uh, that's going on in their head. And I think that, yeah, it's used very effectively in, in uh, Mr. Cellophane. Yeah. I mean, it is really a movie based on that, that lives thrives on its ed- editing and the way it edits be- or it, it cuts between fantasy and reality at all times. I mean, it, that's, that's how it makes its central metaphor about show business. Um, Matt, how about you? I'm really stuck between two, but I'm going to go like, with my gut with this one and they both reach for the gun is probably my favorite. I don't, I know Richard Gere, like his performance is like, even amongst people that love the movie, like not really celebrated, but, uh, I love the, like the editing and the technical skill in the, um, performance itself. And also it's like the one that I think best brings out the themes of the movie and most explicitly like lays out what it's trying to say about the connection between fame and, um, crime and things like that and i just think it's so it's so exciting and christine baranski is like a national treasure also and i just like i i love that brief little interaction that she and richard gear have in that movie that is a great scene it like the way the drama builds through that scene and it's because it's the moment that the whole plot hinges on is like so fucking thrilling like that's the that's the one i remember thinking like holy shit it's <laughs> like, so cool this is <laughs> This is a great film. (laughs) And it's funny seeing, like, when I saw it on stage, like, the stage version's really, like, stripped down compared to the movie, which works in the context. But um, I just remember thinking, I'm like, this should be bigger, (laughs) like, this whole time. Like, this this needs to be, like, a massive, like, um, theatrical number. Yeah, that's yeah. that's one hundred percent my fear of, of of not seeing it on stage. It's truly been on stage the entire time I've been in New York, living in New York City for like, you know, since two thousand six, and I just I just am so I, I don't want it to seem so small. Mm-hmm. Um, um, my favorite is Cell Black Tango, um, mm. which I don't know, probably is really on brand. Um, <laughs> heard it thousands <laughs> of times, love it. Could probably tell like sing the lyrics if i had to you know the gun to my head um and just the staging is so fucking good like it just it thrills me every single time to watch that number i hadn't watched this in a couple years until we watched it for the podcast and i was sort of worried that like the whole movie wouldn't be as good as i remembered because like you're right matt it is that um it is that thing of like 
it's kind of a controversial winner forever for whatever reason just i mean probably just ingrained you know hatred of musicals or whatever um but i think it's so good and i was like like when this number came on i was like oh no it's perfect still it's fine <laughs> like i was like nope the movie's as great as i remember it's so good um oh uh, when she says not guilty it gets me every time <laughs> oh, <laughs> so oh good. yeah no um and then it comes back later it's like it's just such a brilliant mm-hmm. the, the whole thing is so good and every number is really is great i mean like you can have favorites but like truly i don't hate any of the numbers everyone is so good like like even that that opening number is such a, such a such a mood like you mentioned captain zeta jones before george um and she's phenomenal in it um like i she had been in stuff before this obviously but like it was such a like she, the way she sort of roars onto the screen in that first epi- or first uh, episode um first number is like it felt like the biggest debut of a of like a brand new star and and it didn't go anywhere necessarily it did not like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so weird i mean i get it she she has some personal issues but like yeah i don't know it's like watching this movie i just couldn't believe that renee zellweger and and uh Catherine zeta jones didn't get like every role for like 10 years because they're both so excellent in it yeah um, this uh this performance actually reminds me a lot of her performance in intolerable cruelty mm-hmm. um and uh I think that there's a lot of similarities going on between them. And I like, I like her a lot in both of those movies. Um, so I'm sad that she kind of fizzled a little bit. That's how people should use her. Like this sort of like bordering on camp, but very, very theatrical and very showy t- sort of role. And people just don't know like how to channel that. I think, I mean like her other big movies are with Soderbergh, like traffic and um, what's the one with Rooney Mara um, side effects where oh, like, right. yeah. And it's like, I like both of those movies. We'll eventually talk about traffic, but like, um, I think she's really miscast in both of those parts. because It's just not what like she's good at, like, especially in side effects when I, I won't spoil side effects here, but like when everything's revealed about her character, it becomes so silly and like totally works against the tone of that movie. So it's like, she's so good in these very theatrical roles, very like over the top. I mean, she's a very theatrical person in general. Um, I still always associate her with Lucy Liu's portrayal of her on SNL, which is just, if you haven't watched it, (laughs) go look up Lucy Liu playing Captain Zeta Jones on SNL because it's such a joy. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) um, I just, you know, she's a wonderful actress, but I really think it's that people do not know how to channel her. And Intolerable Cruelty, I don't think is a good movie, but I think she's really good in it. And I wish she worked with the Coen brothers more. Um, I think you're right about her, like, working with Soderbergh not being the best option for her, because he's so fucking serious. Like, mm-hmm. Ryan Murphy, having her play <laughs> Olivia de Havilland was the the best choice for her, because it was like, she she got to be a fake gossip, but like it was fun and weird and like she should be in his stuff basically all the time. I'm shocked. She's not like, I'm shocked that he has not worked with her again since then. And I'm shocked that he gave her such a small role in a feud because she's like made for his aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a good, it's a good call. She's absolutely made for his aesthetic. Um, it's funny that you mentioned, uh, I mean, we'll have a chance later, but I think, I think it's important to talk about like the way the the lasting the things that lasted from this movie weren't like Renee like Renee and and Catherine Zeta Jones both had like a little bit of a a career bump after it but 
the person who keeps fucking working <laughs> despite <laughs> not showing much talent afterwards is director rob marshall who i was hoping you'd go this way yes <laughs> oh of course i'm gonna talk about it i mean i met the i not met but i like i saw the man in real life for a mary poppins screening and i still wanted to be like you know quit working <laughs> in front of emily blunt but like i don't he just has tried so many times to like recapture this this feeling of like how excellent this film is and it, it almost feels like you know comparing it to his following work like was he really the director of this fucking movie because like i don't understand how he his instincts are so good here and then have never been good since um george do you have a lot of experience with rob marshall's movies i'm I'm sure you've seen a bunch of them yeah well i uh have seen pirates of the caribbean and uh it is just bland enough that those later ones i don't really remember to be honest rubinsky isn't it uh, is it on Stranger Tides? I believe is him. Yeah, he did the fourth one or the fifth one, whichever one had Penelope Cruz. Okay, yeah, I, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, um, and then he did Into the Woods, which um, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge Sondheim guy, uh, and I don't really love Into the Woods to begin with. And then it just everything that was going on in that movie version of it was really a nightmare to me. So I didn't even make it all the way through. Wow. And that is atypical for me. I usually, even garbage, will sit through. You, I, this, I was just going to say, you watch so much garbage, George. <laughs> yeah, I know it. I know it. <laughs> Look, no one, no one's more aware of that than me. No, so it's a me compliment. Not, I really uh, appreciate that. I mean, I've, I've watched some real shit. I mean, there, I have friends who like are film studies people who are like, the shit you watch is unbelievable. I, but <laughs> like, I, you, I really admire that about that. And I can't believe you didn't get it through Into the Woods. Also, I love yeah. this this hot take of, of anti-Sondheim loving it you will talk yeah, about that in yeah. a minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm a i'm a alw guy for life <laughs> All right. wow um, yikes. Yeah. oh my god <laughs> cancel this episode podcast. he's off the pod <laughs> um, <laughs> i love it wait no i'm not i was gonna ask you about the fan of the opera movie but i i don't have time we i that's very indulgent that's just for me um <laughs> matt what are your thoughts on rob marshall um no yeah he's kind of like a hack I think um, yeah. nine is one of the worst movies I've ever sat through personally. Like it's, it has one good scene and it's the Fergie scene of all things. So for me, the one good scene actually of all, of all the scenes is the um, Marion Cotillard's number, um, the, which the I, one where she gets undressed. Yeah, that one worked for me. I don't know. I think Marion Cotillard's very good at like very specific things. And that, that scene for some reason worked with me. Um, but then you have like Daniel Day Lewis being like, absolutely miscast in a way that's almost like astounding and then just like a lot of weird choices um and um it's so bad it's, it's so bad i mean i watched the i like the fergie one because i saw it in a theater i saw it at the ziegfeld in in the you know in um in new york before it was like a, an event space and like people stood up and cheered during that actual Everybody relax. It's fine. <laughs> I, it's just, I, I, I used to encourage people to go see musicals at the ziegfeld because people went nuts i mean there was a true sexual frenzy during Rock of Ages when Tom Cruise did anything. Um, <laughs> but, like, yeah, I don't know. It's like he has moments of brilliance, but so many of them are bad. And Into the Woods is notoriously just a mess. I mean, I, I like that musical, so I um, yeah. I forgive a lot of it, but I it's, think it's Into, the, Into the Woods has moments that worked for me. I am a Sondheim person. I would literally murder to get a film adaptation of Company. But um, I think... Um, like 
the moments that work in Into the Woods are entirely based on the cast. Like, I really like Anna Kendrick's number. I think it's like, I mean, this is not saying much based on her career, but I think it's like the best work Anna Kendrick has gotten since um, Up in the Air. And um, like, but then other moments that just don't work and it's really tonally uneven and James Corden needs to stop. And um, I just like, I, I feel like that whole movie is just this giant, like, what is going on? shrug yeah. question mark of a movie uh his yeah. tv movie of annie is okay <laughs> i remember that one a lot as a kid <laughs> i don't think i've seen that one i don't yeah, like annie one, though i missed it oh it's kathy bates kristen chenoweth and um audrey mcdonald it's it's like oh, sh- oh, a sh- low-key big deal tv movie <laughs> i gotta check that out maybe um yeah it's interesting i mean i think the, the new mary poppins was pretty good I, there were some decent numbers in that although the, I, there is that number that I call the Vel- Velma Kelly number because it's just like mm-hmm. okay Rob we get it like stop it um, but yeah I don't know it's it's incredible to think that like this movie felt like he was going to be a big deal and then he's he's just squandered that promise ever since but still somehow keeps working while poor Renee Zellweger got like some some questionable plastic surgery and then was like basically dead for a couple years you know it, I will never like let Hollywood off the hook for that. I like Renee Zellweger not working for ten, like fifteen years is one of the most homophobic things to happen in this country. <laughs> um, I um, like I don't know. He no, he he's just. It's hard to screw up the source material. I think like I kind of think any director given Chicago as a musical, uh, like I think it's hard to fuck up. But yeah. um, yeah, it's it's almost astounding how poorly he has lived up to this potential. <laughs> I've never seen Memoirs of a Geisha, but I've heard it's like an awful adaptation, oh, and also just very problematic. I'm, it's it's decently directed, but it's um it's quite messy. I mean, it's it's a mess. Um, yeah. but we're gonna have a t- more um time to talk about Chicago a little later because it's nominated for a, a lot of other things. Like I said, thirteen nominations. But I want to dive into the other Best Picture nominees. Um, I'm gonna start with um Gangs of New York. Matt, what is your experience with Gangs of New York? So I have a funny story about this movie, actually. Um, my dad, like many American dads, is a really big Martin Scorsese fan. So he, I have this vivid memory of he and my mom seeing it together. And my mom coming home and them getting in a massive fight because he liked it and she thought it was one of the worst movies she's ever sat through. And they, it was like a huge fight in my house between the two of them over the quality of this movie. So it was it's kind of like infamous in my house for that very reason. Um, but I saw it for the first time, I think, in high school. I don't remember. Like it, It's been a while. And I remember thinking it was fine in high school. Um, and then watching it again for this one... I still think it's kind of fine, but, like, there's something weird about whenever Sorcesi does one of his passion projects, whether it be this, Silence, or um, Last Temptation, I think, like, he gets too ahead of himself with wanting to do everything that he probably envisioned in his head, and this movie is just so messy, and it's somehow, like, three hours long, but also feels too short, because there's just so many unexplored ideas and, like, themes in it, and... You know, it's entertaining for long stretches. Like, I love the scene with Daniel Day-Lewis throwing the knives at Cameron Diaz. And, like, that whole, like, sequence is the real high point for me. But I just think, like, if this was made today, it'd be a miniseries and it'd be so much better. Because this just feels like the the longest movie that feels unfinished. And I, I, I just kind of don't really care for it. Like, I'll probably never watch it again. It's, it's, it's decent. That's my basic, like, take on it. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. It probably should have been a TV movie. I mean, I, allegedly there was a lot of extra footage. Um, 
for just some background on it, it was actually filmed like um, in two, near the year 2000. And it was supposed to come out around um, like late 2001. But because of, um, you know, some mayhem scenes in New York and explosions and and that final shot of the Twin Towers at the end of it, they delayed it basically a year. But there was also just like a lot of fighting between um, Martin Scorsese and, and Harvey Weinstein, um, who's a producer because it's a Miramax film. Um, and there was a lot of, there were a lot of edits made. I guess there's a the original edit was like 20 minutes longer, although I can't imagine 20 minutes is enough because you're absolutely no. right there. It does feel like there's so much on the cutting room floor for this one um, that like so many things are unexplored and so many character beats are unexplored and, and everybody is just trying to do so much in so little time that it just feels the, the, the mood is, or the, the tone is shifting every 10 seconds. Basically it's mm-hmm. so fucking wild. Um, but yeah, what did you think of it? Um, George? Um, it sounds like I'm the warmest on this movie of the three of us. Cause I do really like it. Um, although I gotta say not necessarily for DiCaprio, although a lot of people love him. I've always been a little lukewarm on DiCaprio, uh, to be totally honest. But uh, you get another John C. Riley performance, <laughs> which I'm always happy about. Um, but just to that end, I think that uh, where this movie really shines is a lot of the secondary character performances. Um, I think that Liam Neeson does a nice job at the beginning. I think that Brandon Gleeson is always wonderful. Uh, Jim Broadbent is kind of chewing the scenery a little bit as Boss Tweed, which I enjoy. Um and just a lot of these smaller performances um, that help to bolster what I think is a good performance from Leo and is, I think, a great performance from Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, it, it, it just works for me. I, I think you are you both make really good points about it feeling at times like there's um, too much going on and then also not enough where maybe it could have been shorter, but there's also feels like there's more to say. Um but just in general, I like it a lot. I saw it uh, for the first time in college with uh, a bunch of my friends and roommates. So it was a good environment. We had just watched uh, There Will Be Blood as well. Mm. So it was, uh, you know, just kind of rolled up. So I'm sure that there's a little bit of the environment seeping into my opinion of it. But uh, even on rewatch, I think it's still pretty good. I mean, I think it's important, you know, where where you watch a film is, is it affects your, your response to it. Um, like, I mean, that's not why I always argue f- in in favor of the theater experience, especially with like a comedy, because like it's about the collective experience sometimes. Um, I saw this alone in my apartment like <laughs> last week. <laughs> um, I had had I bought the DVD when it came out like years ago and then I just never watched it because I had this habit of doing that of like if I hear something's good and it's like five bucks, I'll buy it. Um, and it was like such an old DVD that like it literally couldn't fit on a single disc. I had to st- stop halfway through and and get up and change the disc wow um, i haven't had one of those in like years <laughs> oh i know right i was like i didn't realize it too and I, like i it stopped all of a sudden it just like stops during after i think right after cameron diaz and, and leo dicaprio have sex and i was like oh i gotta get up now and <laughs> dig that out of the the, the notebook <laughs> I, I'll, I guess i'll do that um but yeah like i i hated it i fucking hated it i I hated it so much that I like resent the DVDs taking up space in my collection at this point. Um, but I'll keep it for whatever reason. <laughs> I just thought it was like, I think it's aged really poorly, like having never seen it before this and especially not during the time period. Like it felt the production feels 
oddly very cheap looking to me. Like it, it looks like something that we would, it looks like watching Dr. Doolittle to me already. Do you know what I mean, Matt? It has a weird look to it. It really, um, I like, it looks just very artificial and I don't know, like ugly. It's an ugly looking movie, I think with the exception of some of the costumes. Like I, and it's, it's deliberate on some level, but it also looks like, like a Disneyland version of, (laughs) Like, I think like that's the part of why I like it when they when they still had hookers in it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's, it's, that's fun to me. Like this this like corny like alternative history. Like, oh, we're back in the early 19 or yeah, early whatever whatever year this takes place in. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know the fact that it is kind of corny and fake looking. Um, kind of tickles me in a way that I'm like, yeah, this is fun. I'm I'm on board with it. I yeah. just never. I mean, I, it's, it's supposed to be the Civil War, so it's 1860s. But yeah, like I, I don't mind that tone so much. But I think the problem for me is that um, Leo is in a different movie. He's in a very serious movie. Oh, yeah. where uh, he yeah, is definitely sure. trying to win an Oscar. Um, but everyone else is pretty aware that this is a kind of a a goofy movie. Um, like. Cameron knows it. I think Cameron is, Diaz is really good in it. And I, actually, my two favorite performances are Cameron Diaz and and Daniel Day Lewis. But like the two of them seem to know that they're in kind of a ridiculous film. But Leo is I, like seemingly convinced that he's in a very serious period drama, and like that's what yeah he's glowering the whole time. Yes, and he's so like he's not fun to watch. Like the character's kind of a douche lord. I I don't like him very much, and that's not even. It's it's not even about liking disliking the character character. It's just like what? Why are we rooting for anyone here? Like, they're all just fucking fucking like misogynistic megalomaniacs. Like, who gives a fuck? Like, blow them up. I don't. Well, I think care. at the end, at the end, when they're like, eh, nothing mattered anyway. Like, <laughs> I think that that kind of works with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point to make of like America is built on this this racial violence and and. I don't know, uh, destruction of like personal rights. And there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot there, but I don't think the film really cares about it too much. It's just so like embedded in this, this weird world and like this, this personal drama that really isn't that important. And like, I don't know. I found the like, I especially found the ending pretty tasteless, (laughs) like especially considering the time period. I can't imagine watching this in 2001, not being deeply offended at how like, I don't know, just, limited the thinking is in a way I, I don't I don't know what about it exactly like didn't didn't work for me on a like um exploration of America level but it just didn't something feels first draft seventh grade essay about it to me frankly it feels very unexplored like I don't know if I found the ending offensive particularly or anything like that um but it just feels like Cersei at the end was like you know what I mean. And it's like, we don't because this movie is two and a half hours <laughs> and it should have been like a full eight episode miniseries. It's just like, I don't know. I, I feel so mixed on this movie because there are moments that are just truly brilliant because he is a really talented filmmaker. And then yeah. it, it's just, it's so forgettable despite the fact that it has these brilliant moments in it. But I do want to go back really fast. I agree with you. I think Cameron Diaz is good in this. Like Cameron Diaz along with Renee Zellweger is just like, like actresses who were really wrong by a very misogynistic Hollywood. And um, mm-hmm. I think she's a weird choice for this part. It just plays against so many of her sensibilities. I was looking at IMDb and both um, 
Sarah Polly and Sarah Michelle Gellar were like first choices for the part. Sarah Michelle Gellar? Oh my god. I'm sorry. That, I think that about her all the time. Bad. I think about like I literally think about once a week what how the world would be different if Sarah Michelle Gellar played this part. Um what alternate world of America we could be living in if she played it. Because um as a Buffy stand, I think it's insane that she has no career anymore. But um except like she's like a cooking like Maven now apparently. I don't know. But um She's not that great to me, but I, I, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna. We're not gonna argue about her on this pod. <laughs> Another pod, but um, no, it just Cameron Diaz is fine. Daniel Day Lewis is fine. I actually think Daniel Day Lewis like gets what this vibe is and is going for full camp, and it's yeah. it's kind of fun. If you ever read about him on the set of this movie, like he sounds like a weird man. <laughs> I don't know. Very talented, very strange man. He's a noted weirdo for sure, but I mean that's I think that's why it works. I th- that scene where he's wrapped in the American flag is like so over the top, but he walks that delicate line in, in a way that I don't think a lot of actors could. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, it, the when scene there's that, a close up of his eye <laughs> with the with the eagle on it. It's like, oh, this is so silly. I love it. <laughs> the scene <laughs> yeah. where he like is has Leo on the table and is like screaming is fucking nuts. Like it's such a I was like, holy shit, like no actor could pull this off. And again, using IMDb trivia as some sort of jumping off point and who knows how accurate this is. But apparently Tom Hanks was his first choice for this part and I would love to see what that would have been like. <laughs> that would have been I think truly that is, insane. Wow. Th- those I, I loved it. Can you I I just can't. I'm sorry. I can't imagine a movie, this movie starring Tom Hanks and Sarah Michelle Gellar and like whoever. And like, that's why I don't. That's that's you. I'm glad we honestly don't live in that universe. That sounds like a much worse timeline, but who knows? I think Tom Hanks um, must have got into script and just been like, is this a prank? Like, <laughs> like what? Right. Who's writing this? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, Let's move. Is any, any anything you guys want to say before we we move on to another movie? I'm good. No. All right. Cool. Um, let's do uh, probably a, a a better liked movie. I would think um, Lord of the Rings: Two Towers. Um, Matt, what's your experience with it? Um, I really don't have much. Uh, Lord of the Rings was a trilogy that like I saw in theaters like everyone else back when they came out, and I liked. And um, then I didn't really care about them. I don't think I watched any of them except for maybe Fellowship since they came out. And and then um, I saw the hot the first Hobbit because they were three for some fucking reason. And um, I hated the first Hobbit so 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 much that it like resolved like like re- revised my history with those with that trilogy. And I was like, I don't think I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. And then. Watching Two Towers, I was reminded, like, oh, I do kind of like them. Like, it's really good blockbuster filmmaking. It's very well made. It's amazing what, like, practical sets and actual makeup could do for a movie instead of just, like, messes of CGI. And, yeah, yeah, I like it. I think it's a lot of fun. I definitely don't have this affection for this franchise like a lot of people do. Um, But I think it's a really well made movie and I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, George, you, you have a, you're a little more positive on the, the franchise as a whole, right? Oh yeah. Uh, I am pretty much the counterpoint to Matt. Uh, the Lord of the Rings <laughs> is, uh, among my favorite books. Um, I read it many, many times as a youth. In fact, I would say it was probably the first big kid book I ever really read. Um, and 
I love the books. I love these movies. I think they're incredible. Uh, every year, me and my friends watch all three extended cuts back to back to back. Um, and I just think it's great. I agree that it's fantastic blockbuster filmmaking. I think that the pacing, even on the extended cuts, do not feel nearly as long as these movies are. Um, and they really keep you invested. And even people in my experience who do not particularly care for the genre of fantasy uh, are able to find themselves swept away uh, by this by this movie. And I think that this is my personal favorite one of the three movies. Although I got to say that Matt says something about a uh, Hobbit series, and I'm pretty sure that no Hobbit movies ever came out. So I'm not sure what he's talking about there. <laughs> I wish we could live in that world where no Hobbit movies came out. That, oh. I wish I could get my time back watching that first Hobbit movie. Boy, I hated that fucking thing. I have um, not seen them. Oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> like, I, please, I'll, I want an Eternal Sunshine myself of that movie. Yeah. To be honest, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> I'll never forget it because I I went I saw it at like eight eight a.m. or whatever to get the the forty eight frame rate um, viewing you know experience, and I was like, my god, this looks so bad. This is. This is a crime against cinema. Like it was so bad. Um, I think I'm a little bit in between you guys with with this franchise. I've I've seen the extended cuts because um, a friend of mine is a really big fan and we watch movies together a lot. Um, so I've seen the extended cuts. I was not not. I hated The Hobbit as a kid. I read it as in like sixth grade and I was like, this fucking sucks. I don't want to. I hate this. And then the movies came out like two years later and I was like, oh my god, what? I'm gonna have to sit through this and like. I was spoilers for this this franchise, I guess, but like I was told at one point that um, Frodo would die because I hated Frodo, and I was like, "Great, can't wait." And then I get to the end of the third one, and I was like, "What the fuck? He's not dead? Like, why did I waste my time?" Um, but I, I this this is the one I've seen the most as well, and also the one I like the most. Um, cause it was on TV, like they were all on TV a lot, like cable and stuff. Um, and I would watch this one all the time because it is, you're absolutely right, George. It's really well paced and, um, there's a lot of good character stuff that gets set up here that then, um, carries through to the, to the, the final, um, installment. Um, and I, I think the battle of the Helm's Deep is like truly one of the greatest battle sequences ever done because it's it's like a whole hour and it's never boring and it never feels like you always know what's going on like there's so much you make a good point Matt, like there's the over-reliance on cgi like in a lot of franchises now it, it makes the action unwatchable um and part of that is the like shaky cam close-up stuff that that dominated the conversation for so many years but like it's also that he, the, he just knows how to visually tell a battle scene story. And that's true in all of these. Every single one of these films is like the battle scenes are always incredible, regardless of like how much you do or don't care about what's going on, who's in the battles. Um, like when Gandalf comes in at the end, it's fucking incredible. And every minute is good. Every minute is is really compelling in this film. And it, it doesn't like Kings of New York to me felt days long and this does not feel as 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 like two, like two and a half hours or what or three hours realistically like it doesn't feel like three hours to me so i really like this one um i think it's brilliantly made like i i like sometimes think that like you know people were saving 
saving giving the franchise a bunch of Oscars until the third one. And I, I think that's sort of unfortunate because this one I think is like the perfect one, honestly. I agree. I think it's a perfect middle one between Fellowship and Return of the King in addition to just being like a great movie overall. Um, and I also, I totally agree with you that if not the very best, that Helm's Deep is one of the best battle scenes of all time. And I remember a couple months ago, there was some buzz that, like, the Long Night in Game of Thrones was going to rival Helm's Deep. <laughs> and, like, watching that and then re-watching it um, just last weekend, re-watching uh, Helm's Deep. Well, I watched the whole movie again, but, <laughs> but I'm re-watching Helm's Deep specifically. Um, like, the difference is so palpable and... And I think that it really is a testament to what Peter Jackson did here that 17 years later, it is still the benchmark and people are still failing to live up to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm honestly hard pressed to find, you know, I, I don't want to shit on Marvel again because I, it seems like I do it a lot, even though I, I like generally like most of those films. Um, but I, I can't think of a battle in one of those that like, makes me as thrilled as as this did i mean endgame it comes closer but like that's because of the characters dynamics at work and the time i've spent with those characters but like the the visual storytelling is unparalleled in this i think it's i i have a hard time thinking of anything that i think is action wise like as compelling i mean maybe probably one of the mission impossibles realistically but and fury road yeah. is the only thing i can think of like that holds up a candle to like what peter jackson is doing here battle wise and Endgame, I think also, like, just to go to that um, film for a minute, that final battle scene, which is supposed to be, like, this big epic payoff to however many movies it's been, was so ugly to me, because you can very clearly tell that no two people were actually filming at the same time. They, like, bragged about that with the anecdote about Tom Holland, like, oh, he didn't know what was happening. And I'm like, that's not a good thing. (laughs) Like, that's not good filmmaking. Yeah. And so, you know, it's... This this movie and this trilogy, honestly, again, like I don't remember the sequels as like they were the first and the third as well as this one um, because it's been a few years. But like, it feels like a very sad relic of what film blockbuster filmmaking used to be. And I get like, it's a little it's a little upsetting. I think I I miss these sort of action movies, but yeah, not this franchise specifically. Please don't ever like. <laughs> Like, I'm dreading this Amazon series that we're getting um, about Lord of the Rings because I, I can't. I can't. The world. Yeah, the world is I'm, I'm not me. a high fantasy fan, but, uh, you know, I, I, there's I hate I didn't like these movies when they came out. But after watching the um, the extended cuts, like I cannot deny the filmmaking prowess at work. And it's funny because Peter Jackson, like Rob Marshall, I think, has failed to live up to the standard set by this trilogy, um, even though I kind of like King Kong. But. You know, Lovely Bones is a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Oh, that was bad. Oh, what a mess. <laughs> he fucked up, a bu- a, fucked up a book that, like, should have been very easy to adapt, really. Like, the story is very compelling. And then he just made every single bad decision. Weird guy. Yeah, it's interesting. It does sometimes feel like he put everything into these movies and then just, like, everything that he was great at before... I don't know. It's something. Something broke. I don't. I don't, I don't know what. To, I don't know what. I don't know how to define it. It's weird. Um, uh, any Any last thoughts on on two towers before we we move on, guys? Yeah, I actually do have one more yeah, thought. I, I just want to say that my biggest gripe, and 
when I when I look at the fact that the Lord of the Rings to the Two Towers is on this best best picture nominee list, it's hard for me because I love the extended cuts so much that those are the versions that I always watch. And I, at this point, kind of forget what's missing from the theatrical versions. And so to me, the fact that it's that cohesive uh, and that the theatrical version is the one that gets nominated, I have a hard time giving the theatrical version as much credit as the extended version just because it is so cohesive and it does all work together so well. And that's so much of the things that I'm pretty sure do get cut are smaller character moments that, um, while it's true that this is an an incredible action scene, it's not all that this movie is. There's a lot of really awesome stuff, especially in the fields of Rohan, especially when they're in the Fanghorn forest talking to the Ents Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of those scenes, even if it's just a couple minutes here and a couple minutes there getting trimmed, um, it's just a lesser version to me to have the theatrical version. I, th- I think you're right on some level. I mean, it, it, it certainly having seen uh, this was the first time I'd watched the theatrical cuts and seeing the um, um, the extended cuts. And it does feel a touch more episodic. But I I am thankful that it has less end time because those scenes make me homicidal. I, I, I hate those tree suck, those tree bastards until they become, until they're in a battle. Like when they're in the battle, it's great. But when they're just talking slowly, I, I truly am ready to commit as much murder as possible. Well, Mary and Pippin are my favorites. So I just like getting to spend more time with them. Yeah, I get you. They're, they're very fun. I, I I should, it's a, I haven't, I'm, I'm an end racist and I admit that. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? All you can do is move forward and learn from, from it. (laughs) I will say that my favorite end is the one who's on fire. And then when the the water comes down, he like dumps the water real quick. That's like my favorite thing in any of these movies. (laughs) It's so funny. It's the best moment because it's such a funny little visual touch. Like, because like you see him getting set on fire like a couple minutes earlier, and you're like, oh no, that that end's gonna get like yeah. you know burned to death. And then he's like running into that water, like oh, <laughs> it's just so <laughs> funny to me. Um, but yeah, um, I'm very anti end. Sorry, ends. Um, all right, let's go to um, they're both pretty depressing at this point, but let's do the hours. Um. I'm going to start on this one. I had never seen it um, for whatever reason. I I saw most of these movies when they came out. Um, But the hours I didn't see and I watched it for this podcast and it fucking blew my mind. I just was like really into it for whatever reason. Um, It's very literary. It's an adaptation of basically an adaptation of um, Virginia Woolf's um, Mrs. Dalloway. And in one time, you have three separate timelines. One timeline, um, Nicole Kidman in a in a prosthetic nose plays Virginia Woolf, who is clearly so depressed that she is going to kill herself at some point. Um, and there's this pallor of death that hangs over the whole thing, which I found really fascinating because, like, the other two stories are basically modern adaptations of what Mrs. Dalloway is. And Mrs. Dalloway is written in oh, the early 20s, I believe it comes out, um, 1920s, um, or something like that. But, yeah, like, she's she's writing that... She's in the act of writing it in one timeline, and the other two timelines reflect that writing. And, like, I... For me, it worked very well, because, like, I don't think the other two timelines are actually real, in a way. I think they're... 
expressions of her writing in a different time period that she wouldn't have expected that just like are a artistic license of the film. Um, and I think all the, all the performances are very good because what all the women are doing is performing a sort of uh, feminine mystique type malaise of they're all clearly depressed, but they have nowhere to channel that into. And it's indefinable why they're sad. But it's just a, I don't know, I think it's a really interesting picture of depression that is very well well done. And I, I like a lot of, I mean, I like a lot of it. It's, it just, I, I saw it, I think I saw it very early on when we were starting to do this project. And I haven't, I haven't like stopped thinking about it since. And I, I started reading Mrs. Dalloway because of it, um, which is very different and sort of stream of consciousy and, and not quite for me in the same way, but um, uh, the movie is great. Um, George, how about you? Uh, I actually also had not seen this one, uh, but when I watched it, I really enjoyed it. I don't know that I got quite as much out of it as you did, but I definitely uh, thought it was really wonderful, and it was easy to see why it made this list. Um, I gotta say, uh, a third John C. Riley performance. <laughs> so oh take God. take note, Hollywood. <laughs> uh, you put the man in movies, you get a Best Picture nomination. Um, but specifically, I think that... Um, Again, similar to um, Gangs in New York, this one really works because there's a lot of small performances propping up these great big performances as well. Mm-hmm. I think Tony Collette does a really awesome job as Katie when she comes over uh, to talk to Julianne Moore, uh, who I think Julianne Moore also does a fantastic job in this movie. Um, Ed Harris is good. Uh, Allison Janney is good. Um mm-hmm. You know, just a lot of these uh, performances that are kind of exist just to be kind of like a sounding board for these bigger performances that are great. Meryl Streep is great in it. Nicole Kidman is great. Uh, I had heard really awful things about the prosthetic, and it was not as bad as I, I mean, it wasn't great, but it wasn't as bad as I had heard. Um, it's fine. Yeah, I, yeah, that was a way overblown. Yeah, and I think Kidman does a good job. In fact, uh, after watching Nicole Kidman in this, I started thinking about if Nicole Kidman had in fact played uh, either the Renee Zellweger part in Chicago or the Cameron Diaz part in Gangs in New York. Um, And I I don't know. I just think that Nicole Kidman uh, also sort of gets overlooked at times. Um, And I think that she's really great in this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. She got her Moulin Rouge moment. Thank God. That's true. That's true. Not a a film I love, but she's phenomenal in it. I think I like, I think she's impeccable in that film. Um, sure. Matt, how about you? Yeah. So um, I, I wanted to check this before we started recording, but I totally forgot, but I'm like 99% sure the hours is the first movie I logged on letterbox when I had an account. Um, I think it was like, oh, wow. yeah, uh, it was like, so I, I first watched it in 2013. If it's not the very first, then it's like one of the first five. And um, yeah, I really, Liked it at the time, forgot most of it except for Julianne Moore's subplot. Um, and then watching it again for this, it's like really effective and well made. It has so many things that I like about it, which is why I'm like, it's upsetting that I just like there's something about the way Kidman's storyline is so far removed from the other two that prevents me from just like loving it i keep waiting for this like giant emotional catharsis that ties together all three stories and never comes but i find it so consistently well made and um 
Real, like every performance of this is so perfect. Um, the nose is fine. I agree with you both. <laughs> it's like it. I think that stem more that controversy from just like Kidman not looking like herself usually and some sexism from that. Um, yeah. And um, I like it's it's a very effective movie. I love the score. I think this like it, it's a gorgeous score, really well directed. I think. He, he's made some mistakes lately, but I think Stephen Daldry is in general a very talented director. And, um, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I think this movie has individual moments that are really, really brilliant. And it's funny because the Julianne Moore story was my favorite when I watched it in 2013. And it's still really, really good. Um, we'll get to the performances later, but I, like, I pretty much think this is probably Julianne Moore's best performance um, in this. But, um,. This time, the Meryl Streep story is actually what really stuck out to me. I think it's, like, it's so refreshingly simple, and um, but there's, like, the whole relationship between her and Ed Harris is so, like, deeply complex, and there's so much, like, hidden history yeah. there. And I love her few scenes with Alice and Janney that are just, like, again, like, they you never get a whole vibe of them as a couple, but there's so much there that, like, they very clearly are bringing to the table. So it's a movie that, like, I, I wish I loved, but it, there's so many individual parts that I love in it where it's, like, hard to complain. Like, I think it's a really effective movie. Yeah. I, I think it's really about interesting. the Virginia Woolf thing, because, like, for me, the thing, it's, like, the the emotional thing there is that she she does have to kill herself. Uh, that's history, people. It's not mm-hmm. it's not me spoiling anything. Like, read a fucking book. But, <laughs> like, the thing is, her big emotional thing is that she has to kill herself, and and the 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 way the reason that happens is that like she is in a time where she's basically not actually in control of her life and has no outlet except for her writing. Like she is in love with her like sister, I guess. I don't. There's a there's a real lesbian situation going on, but also a clear un that's not allowed. And like mm-hmm. she's married to a man who is nice to her and who she seems to love, but like clearly there's a whole life that would have been lived there if she had lived in a different time period and like the other two characters get to live that life in a way which is why they don't have to kill themselves um but it's it is quite the whole thing is basically about the quiet dissatisfaction of like womanhood in in spaces where they're not allowed to have what they want because of the things that are expected them of them so like i mean i think there is something to that of like you are supposed to leave the film unhappy but basically unhappy (laughs) like it's an emotional transference thing of like these people are so deeply unhappy because they have no no means of fulfilling all of their desires and and motivate like at the things they want out of life like you know virginia will have to kill herself because there's just she can't even go to the city like she's being told she has to go to the country to be less depressed but Obviously, that is the thing that's making her more depressed, and nobody, nobody changes that. It's like mm-hmm. it's so frustrating. This like constant frustration of, of of like gendered frustration. I don't know. It's there's. I think like that's what I think works. Maybe it doesn't work as a a whole. I could see that, but yeah, I don't know. I think there's such like dark stuff in it that like it's it's a really excellent like picture of of just you know the women basically. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I, I do love a, the like. There's one um, like smaller part that I wanted to call out. It's Miranda Richardson as as the like woman that Virginia Woolf is in love with is so good. Like that whole scene is so filled with like this potent sense of like they want to say something more and then it, it bursts and then they have to. She immediately has to leave. It's like so fascinating. It's um, one of Nicole Kidman's best scenes. Any last thoughts on the hours before I move on? Uh, I'm good. 
All right. Cool. Uh, I just I thought that it was interesting that Matt wanted uh, wanted more connection between the three stories, and frankly, that connection at the end between the two was like the part that made me kind of groan at it, where I was like, uh, I don't, I didn't necessarily need her. It was one thing to have her be the mom, and even that, I was kind of like a little iffy on. Um, and I'm thrilled that um, that she didn't kill herself and that she got to live her life. Spoiler alert. But um, I don't know if the way that they handled it kind of felt like it was supposed to be this big, like, uh, take you out at the knees surprise. And it kind of treated it like a gimmick a little bit to me. Um, and uh, I don't know. I just it, it was weird to me that that connection part. And so. Uh, I kind of wish it hadn't been there at all and that these were kind of discreet stories. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I kind of agree with that. It it does feel a little too tidy, uh, just a little like a a writerly flourish that feels a little a little affected realistically because it's it it makes a good point. But it also you're right. I don't know if I needed it necessarily. I like Um, the connection of like. The like the queer connection I think between the sun like it, it brings out the connection between the sun and Julian more in the fifties subplot and then to see them both being these two very different queer people suffering from similar queer issues, not similar but like major queer issues um, as like adults. That's what I find more just like fascinating, like the way it's like all these different themes of repression are connected in some way from yeah. story to story. Sure, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's the uh, the part that definitely works about it for mm. for sure. Um, all right, let's let's move on to the pianist. Um, the uh, like the I watched it for this and it was the most depressing thing I've ever seen, but also um, honestly incredible. I think it's a, a really great movie. Um, but I'll, I'll let you guys talk about it a little more first. Uh, George, how about you? What, what did you, did you or what? I had not seen the pianist before this. Um, I am Jewish, and uh, although not a particularly religious person, um, I I don't know. The Holocaust certainly has a special place, I'll say. Yeah. Um, and in addition to not really caring for war stories in general, um, I tend to avoid Holocaust stories as well. Um, I just find them to be too depressing, uh, especially because it's so real. And... Uh, so like I haven't seen I hadn't seen this uh, I hadn't seen Sophie's Choice I haven't seen uh, Schindler's List all these mm-hmm. classics uh, they just have slipped past me um, and so watching this um, it it was very powerful I gotta say um, there's a lot of really beautiful shots um, I think it's really impressive that they Adrian Brody is definitely a character in it but he is passive enough that. Mm-hmm you feel like you're really taking part in this as well. Um, And you just see him grow thinner and gaunter and more haunted by the things he's seeing. Um, And you're right there with him the entire time. And a lot of these really horrific acts are presented without or with minimal score, um, which works for me the same way that Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer does, that the flatness of it really uh lets you kind of absorb the impact of the image of the image on its own and not how the movie or the composer is telling you to feel you get to really decide how you're feeling about this and i think that that makes it incredibly powerful yeah i mean it's i think this thing that's most striking about it for me is just how like the the 
you're you're right. It's it's the way you're experiencing it with him. Um, he's such an audience surrogate, but like the the shocking suddenness and 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 realism of of like every bit of brutality that he comes in contact with, or just like that and and the the chance involved in it all. Like he survives. You know, he doesn't go to the the concentration camps with his family because you know he one person saves him and like the way that he just sort of makes it through not by not necessarily by any action of his own just but through pure luck it's just like it just underlines what a like horrible 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 thing it all is it just it's like the the, the awfulness of it um and you know it's it's interesting that you say that about Brody. Like I I I wonder during this like he's very good and and physically it it it, it conveys everything you need to know. But I I do wonder if like it's almost like a Kuleshov effect of like that he's just re like he could do anything basically in reacting to these what happens around him. And it's it's really the power of the what's happening around him that's that's sort of creating the power and the performance, um, which isn't a dig. I just I just wonder if like. I don't know. I just don't. I don't know. It's it's an interesting, in, an interesting thing to have to play to be this person that we have to sympathize with, but who also is uh, somewhat devoid of certain characteristics in a way, like other than playing the piano. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's a really interesting film um, that honestly over for me overcomes the the sort of stigma of being directed by Roman Polanski. Um, yes. So the. I, I first saw the film in high school. Um, uh, I forgot why we watched it, but um, and if you had asked me before this, um, like the last week when I watched it again, like if you asked me before then to tell you the story of the film, um, I like I wouldn't remember the specific plot details, but there were just certain scenes and images that really st- stick out to me still um, from that like from the film from back in high school that I just haven't forgotten and um watching it again last week was a really interesting experience because it's like it's so deeply troubling and that first hour or so when you see um the the way nazism slowly crept in and like rights were taken away bit by bit was like like I like was like truly having like a crisis watching it and I almost like consider just like taking a break and like returning and watching the second two hours or whatever like at another time because it's it's so real and troubling um in a way that I had forgotten and I mean I'm sure it feels a little more relevant today than it did in my like sheltered world in um 2011 or whatever but um so it's a very powerful movie though it's like kind of incredible, incredibly well made, and um, yeah, with the Adrian Brody of it all to go off what you both were talking about, um, I think his performance is really interesting and just like it's so it's so quiet. I mean, I don't even know how much dialogue he has in the film, but it feels like next to nothing. Especially since there are such long stretches when he's like the only one on screen or like he can't talk for whatever reason, and. Um, it's really impressive. It's very, it's like so physical. It's, I mean, like even just the, the way he loses weight and then like, um, it like changes his appearance is very impressive. Um, it's a powerful performance. I think 
this is the sort of film, and this is not a dig towards his performance at all. Like, I do think the movie itself is so powerful and so well directed where almost any actor could do a similar thing with it. It just that sort of, it's the sort of role like that you just have those certain parts where you like, it's really hard to fuck up. And I think he does a really good job. Yeah. I think, I think the entire ensemble is very impressive. It's like, Everyone feels very real, which makes the film more troubling. And I think it helps also, unless I'm blanking out, that like with the exception of Adrian Brody, it's a lot of lesser known actors and a lot of character actors. And like maybe some of them became a little more famous after the fact, but like I didn't recognize them. And um, that's very impressive. Like that makes it all the more real uh, in a way that like other like films just aren't able to, to accomplish. So, you know, it's a very, it's just a very troubling movie. And I had forgotten, even though I remember some of those scenes like are burned in my, into my brain from high school, like I forgot how troubling it is as a unit. And like, it's powerful. It's, it's really powerful for making. I agree with you. It's a sort of thing where it's, it's hard to watch a Roman Polanski movie in like in 2019. Um, especially like just, it's hard to watch a Roman Polanski movie, but this is one where I think like it's still vital. And I, think like it should be like a part of like a necessary film canon yeah it's it's brilliant filmmaking and it's impossible to deny that um it's just yeah it's everything you said i second is for sure it's it's really brilliant one thing Um, that really jumped out at me um is there's a lot of kind of talk of paralysis and like going with the flow and like not being able to make a choice um there's a lot of dialogue about that and there's also a lot of um that paralysis extends into action as well in moments where people are laying down in the streets as the nazis are walking past them and shooting them in the head and just executing them and instead of you know, trying to escape or anything as they're literally walking down the line and shooting them. He yeah. takes the time to reload this pistol and the guy is still just laying there. Yeah. And I think that that paralysis really uh, does communicate into today's day and age. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are kind of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, this too will pass. Um, and I think that a lot of this, a lot of the Holocaust imagery that that makes me think about today really makes me think about like how sometimes action is necessary, um, and that you know these these moments are so agonizing to watch them just accept their fate as it comes towards them, mm-hmm. slowly reloading a pistol. Uh, you know, just really is heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Um, but I also I, I want to say that in addition to. Uh, like as it is a great movie, there are some weird uh, edits to me that um, were. It's like a really aggressive fade to black and then a fade back in, and uh, I started noticing it a lot around the hour and a half mark um, at like one twenty four, one thirty eight, one forty one. I started like really noticing these aggressive cuts where it felt like they were just like, well, we don't know how to get to the next one, uh, so I guess we're just gonna fade out here. So it's it's not perfect in my opinion. It is there are definitely some issues, but it is uh, I agree extremely powerful and uh, should be watched. Yeah, I mean I think that's just a for, I, I'm okay with those because it just is about um a lighting time to me and this you know it, like I, I don't I don't mind those cuts so much, but yeah I could I could see where it maybe it would work for some people, but um but yeah I, I think that that you're absolutely right the like the thing that resonated for me that felt very, very, um, like 
important to now. It's just the, the constant casual cruel, cruelty of it all. Mm-hmm. Like that reloading the gun thing. And the, and it just, the, the way it was just, it's, it truly felt by chance that like he survives because in any of those moments, he could have been chosen to get shot in the head for no reason for, for basically for their fun. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's that scene where the, <clears throat> the Nazis like, make a pe- make a bunch of people run down a street and then they just shoot them shoot them for like you know target practice what it was shocking um and it just feels like on some level sometimes you are just sort of there's only so much action you can take in some ways when you're just being batted around by the, mm-hmm. the waves of history essentially. yeah you're not wrong um uh, it, it, it's easy for me to say it looking back you know but uh uh for sure I think that there is an issue. Um, it's, it was just something I noticed. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, uh, no, I don't want to discredit what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I My other issue with this movie, I have to say, that uh, it feels to me like the implication at the end is that this love of art redeemed this Nazi. And, oh, they're not so different, you and I. Mm-hmm. And to me, no. This guy, I don't, I mean, it's great that he didn't kill Adrian Brody, but the fact that they were in this position at all and that he had risen to a rank of a Nazi officer, that guy's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. The fact that we're supposed to be like, oh, Adrian Brody did go to try and get him out and maybe we should feel a little sad for this guy who died in a Russian encampment. I'm like, no, I don't feel bad for him at all. <laughs> like, uh, I have no sympathy for this guy. Um, and the implication that, oh, because he likes the piano and he, he lets Adrian Brody live – that this one good act, you know, clears this guy's slate. I don't think so. Not for me. Yeah. yeah I think that's point. one of the things that doesn't age well, which we now have more context for, if you will. Like, I think we, we must've felt safe in 2002 to say, well, there are good people amongst bad people, but that feels naive now. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I do agree. Yeah. Yeah, no, that I I agree with you on on that one. That that one beat sort of felt a little off to me. Like where I, I would understand the real guy would like be forever grateful to that person, but you do have to. Uh, I don't know. It's a that that he's so he's so maybe un, un, unintentionally so menacing when they first encounter each other that uh, I don't know. It's just it's hard to really take that. Like, well, not a, not they're not all bad sort of thing because you're right he's an officer he had to do something um but let's uh wrap up on this the best picture stuff um i think i i would actually be fine with most of these except for gangs of new york winning best picture but i'm still going to keep chicago as a winner because i just think chicago's perfect and like impeccable um matt who's your choice for uh what's your choice for a best picture yeah i'd also go with chicago i think i think it's a mixture of i really hate the way it, its reputation has become like an unworthy best picture winner, which is just insanity to me. And also just, I do think it's like, yeah, it's, it's an impeccable movie. It's, it's so good. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. George. Uh, as blasphemous as this may seem to some people, I am not going to pick Lord of the Rings, the two towers, and I am going to leave it with Chicago <laughs> because I think that it, uh, it does a great job of offering a little something for everybody. Like I said before, um, and, uh, I already described my issues with the theatrical version of the Lord of the Rings. So for that reason, I pick Chicago as well. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, truly, I think except for gangs, of New York, gangs of New York, any of these would be, 
be a good choice. Like, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. Um, even even I, uh, a noted Lord of the Rings non-enthusiast, would, would be fine with two towers. Um, all right, so let's go to the um, the other categories. Um, let's start with director. Uh, Roman Polanski won. He was not at the um, the ceremony because, you know, he's still a fugitive from U.S. Um, at the time. So um, Harrison Ford, who was presenting, um, accepted it for him. But the other – sorry, there's a dog barking. Um, the <laughs> other nominees were Martin Scorsese for Gangs of New York, Pedro Almodovar for Talk to Her, and um, Rob Marshall for Chicago, and Stephen Daldry for The Hours. Um, George, what, who's your pick? Boy, this is a tough one. Uh, I am tempted to leave it with Polanski, but I think that I am going to give it to Rob Marshall for Chicago. Um, I think that especially that he was able to get these performances out of his actors and make everything come together in the way that he did when we've seen in later issues that are not issues, but in later uh, movies that something happened that he can't do that anymore. (laughs) And so um, I think it's only right to reward him when he was able to do it. And uh, he gets my pick here. Yeah. I, I, I fully see your argument. Like that's my internal struggle with this too, of like, you know, it's such a perfect piece of directing. And honestly, I think I think uh, the pianist is, too, even though I have, you know, uh, troubling feelings about um, Rowan Polanski in general. But, like, uh, the thing that ha- makes me hesitate with Rob Marshall was, like, what if he, if we had embol- emboldened him then? What <laughs> worse things would he have done with his <laughs> everything that followed? followed like my god um but you're right i don't know it's tough i mean i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna cop out and keep it with polanski even though i i do i do agree that rob marshall does a perfect directing job on that one um matt what about you yeah i'm gonna leave it with polanski as much as i think he should burn in hell (laughs) um it's like (laughs) it's impeccable filmmaking and you know but he's gross and i never i i don't think i can ever like pay to watch a movie of his again like that that's like how i'm feeling with like these me too directors and everything like that where it's like i watch so much of their filmography and we'll be talking about so much of his filmography on these podcasts um including one of my all-time favorite movies eventually but like yeah it's a sort of thing where i'm just like this is in really incredible filmmaking and it's like it's hard to deny i do think it's it's such an important movie because of what he does as a filmmaker so it's like all right i'll give it to him but he can he can go burned in hell (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, it's tough. Um, all right, let's do best actor. Um, Adrian Brody won um, infamously. Um, he he ran up there and and kissed uh, Halle Berry, who was presenting it, and she looked shell shocked and has said in later years that like that wasn't her favorite moment of her life. Um, which you know, in the at the time it seemed very charming, but now with all the consent stuff that we're talking about, it's certainly a little queasy. But at the time, mm-hmm. it was very charming. Um, Adrian Brody won for the pianist. Daniel Day Lewis was nominated for Gangs of New York. Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt. Michael Caine for The Quiet American, and Nicholas Cage for Adaptation. Um, I think this is a totally fucking stacked category. I actually love a lot of these movies. I've seen About Schmidt like dozens of times because um, it was on HBO a lot. Um, I th- I think it's fine to give it to Brody. Um, although, boy, did he really suffer from the Oscar curse afterwards. Mm-hmm. But actually, if I, I really had a choice, I'd, I'd think I'd give it to Jack Nicholson. 
I really like that movie. Um, uh, Matt, what about you? This is tough. I think there are a lot of great performances here. I don't love about Schmidt, um, but I think Jack Nicholson's really good in it. I love Daniel Day-Lewis in Pianos of New York, but I don't love that movie. Um, but I'm going to go with Nicolas Cage, actually. I think I am a huge adaptation fan, and um, I think what he's doing there is really interesting, and I... I don't love the film that Nick. I have complicated feelings about the film that Nicolas Cage won an Oscar for, but I want him to have an Oscar. So yeah. I'm going to go with um, this one. I, I, I would give him this Oscar. It's very impressive. It's a very good performance because he's playing two people. So mm-hmm. it's he and he does really good work and like it really channels his weirdness into a in a really <laughs> really good way. Like that a positive direction. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And in a way that, like, so few films actually understand how to do. Mm-hmm. Um, George, how about you? Uh, I also do not care for About Schmidt. And I don't even think that Jack Nicholson is that good in it. And Slander. so, I know, given my druthers, in fact, Ed Norton would replace him in this list for wow. a 25th hour. Okay. Um, but Fair. that said, uh, I am also going to pick Nicolas Cage for adaptation. I think that Adrian Brody does a really good job. But I think that all of the discussion about could anybody else do this role mm-hmm. um, really uh, is a negative a negative influence on that. And I think that nobody except Nicolas Cage could do that performance and adaptation. Mm. Um, and his weirdness is on full display. And I get a lot of flack for this, but I think, and I've said it before, that Nicolas Cage is a good actor when he has the support to give him, uh, to let him be good. Um, I, I am not familiar with Matt's feelings on leaving Las Vegas, but I love that movie. I think that he's incredible in it. Um, and I think that this is Oscar number two for Nicolas Cage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm with you on face off. Matt and I are big defenders. George. Matt, what'd you say? No, I'm sorry. Um, I like just wanted a second. I hate, the hot takes about Nicolas Cage being a bad actor and everything like that. Like it's truly, it's like watch a movie before 2004 people. It's like, he's a great actor. It's just, he has, he has a weird vibe and um, I don't know. Uh, Leaving Las Vegas will eventually talk about, but I just, that movie's a a bit too much, like leaning too hard on the sadness porn. Um, But he's a really brilliant actor. I would love for him to get a comeback. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had that with that that movie that I actually didn't like, uh, Mandy. At least he got some attention for that. He was good in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think unfortunately yeah, I that film it, but... that film didn't understand actually how to use him, um, mm-hmm. and the audience that consumed it didn't actually understand <laughs> what like they were too obsessed with how goofy it was to under like to see that he was actually doing some good work in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that scene where he has to like in one shot, like you know cry and drink and do all this stuff is like actually a very difficult piece of acting that so few people could pull off. But I remember people in my audience like sort of giggling at it because they have no, an issue confronting a real emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's do supporting actor. Um, Chris Cooper won for adaptation. Uh, Christopher Walken was nominated for catch me if you can. Ed Harris for the hours, John C. Riley for Chicago. One of his many, many performances that year. Um, and Paul Newman for road to perdition. Um, Matt, who's your choice? Uh, I love all five of these performances. Actually. Um, it's a, great lineup and there are so many actors on the peripheral that i would also have put in like so it's like a a weirdly stacked year for best supporting actor a category i usually don't care about but um 
I would probably go with Ed Harris here. Um, I I think Chris Cooper's a really fun win, but um, I don't know. I just like I forgot how good Ed Harris is in this role, and it's the sort of thing. It plays against so many of his sensibilities, and he's really willing to like lean in with it and like do something interesting. And his scenes are the ones that stuck out to me the most, and I I, um, I, I like that a lot. I would give him the win. It's crazy he doesn't have yeah. an Oscar. That's my my biggest take on him. <laughs> it is weird that he doesn't have an Oscar, considering how consistent he's always been. Um, George? Yeah, uh, this is a really great list. Um, I agree that these are all good performances, but it's, it's got to be my boy, John C. <laughs> Riley. Um, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's the, the only real pick here, because not only is he great in that performance, he's incredible incredible actor in two other great movies on this on this best picture list uh and i think that it's it would not only be a reward for this performance but as a a, a year well done john c <laughs> yeah i agree with you i, I i'm gonna give it to him as well like it, it just based purely on this performance it's a great performance and i think he has you know a lot to do in it um but yeah, you're right. He, it's I, I've argued before for a, a great job on a good year Oscar. So, you know, I'm not I'm not going to argue with it again. Um, okay, let's do best actress. Um, Nicole Kidman won for the hours. Diane Diane Lane was nominated for Unfaithful. Julianne Moore for Far from Heaven. Renee Zellweger for Chicago and Selma Hayek for Frida. Um, I kind of think Nicole Kidman is a little bit of category fraud here, but mm-hmm. I I'm not going to at this point in her career or in in like her experience i'm not gonna argue with her having an oscar you know like i'm not that person um and it's a decent performance although i probably would have given it to renee um george how about you yeah this is a tough category for me mostly because i haven't seen the the frida unfaithful or far from heaven uh so for me Unfaithful and Far From Heaven are very good. I think you might like those. Yeah, I, I, they're on my watch list on Letterboxd. I just haven't gotten to it, but maybe this will be the kick in the pants. Um, I I see your point about category fraud here, uh, but I think I'm going to leave it with Nicole Kidman because I think that she her her performance in that movie is kind of the – the point on which the other two fulcrums swing. Yeah. Uh, so I think that she's integral to the to the movie, and she does a great job with it. So I'm giving it to Kidman. All right, um, Matt. How about you? I cannot believe you both are going to make me slander Nicole Kidman um, on this podcast episode in during Pride Month. <laughs> during Pride Month, um, <laughs> the audacity. Um, but I would have voted for Nicole Kidman the year before from Moulin Rouge, so I can comfortably not give her this Oscar because I think it's like insane category fraud. She has the least amount of screen time yeah. compared to the two other actresses in the film, including Julianne Moore, who's in supporting. And um, yeah. while like I usually am not a category fraud police officer or anything like that, like I just think it's like, this is sort of insane category of fraud. And um, it's egregious. It's like, it, it, it's a very much like a Weinstein. It's, it's like a Weinstein trick. Like he was known for like, the weird category fraud he would pull off and like his like insane Oscar um, strategies and everything. Um, uh, I love the four other performances. Unfaithful is so good. Um, But, and I like Frida a lot too. Um, I'm like a weird Julie Taymor stand weirdly enough. Um, 
but um, I I would give it to Renee. I think, um, especially since not to spoil our 2003 episode, but we're already talking about 2001 a little bit. I do not like Renee's win for Cold Mountain. So I like this is the Oscar she should have. It's her best performance, um, and she's so she's so good. Give, uh, justice for Renee. Yeah, it's a career right. defining performance. She Matt convinced me. I'm switching. Gay right. <laughs> I, I'm giving it to Renee, especially because I also didn't think she deserved to win for Cold Mountain. So, wow, Team Matt. There we um, go. There okay. we go. I was fine with Cold Mountain win, but I was I was fine with Cold Mountain win just because I was glad she got one. But whatever, we'll talk about it in a couple years, I'm sure. We will. Um, all right, supporting actress, uh, Catherine Zeta Jones won for Chicago. Julianne Moore, The Hours. Kathy Bates about Schmidt. Uh, Meryl Streep for the hours and Queen Latifah for Chicago. It's, to me, there is no other choice but Catherine Zeta-Jones. But um, what, do you two have any other options you would like to to, to give up? I do. I really like Julianne Moore. Uh, I think okay. she's really great in the hours. Um, I probably would still land on Zeta-Jones, but uh, I think that Julianne Moore at least deserves to be uh, uh, honorable mention. Mm-hmm. Definitely. This Matt? is this is the toughest year I think like for supporting actress in my lifetime um because i kevin zeta jones is out of this world and i like like i mentioned before julianne moore like this is my favorite julianne moore performance um like by a slight margin over another one we'll talk about eventually um and um but i'm going with meryl streep because this is actually my favorite meryl streep performance like i think it's um and i'll like explain that in the way that people now have this whole idea of meryl streep at like of being this very theatrical over the top actress in a good way like not like like people i think we we can avoid hot takes about meryl streep being a bad actor she's amazing um but she's very theatrical and i think she's having a lot of fun doing that now um but like this is such a toned down lived in performance and so much of like the movie's emotional catharsis rests on her her i think it's her last line in the movie like always breaks me a little bit like it just like she's so in control of the character it's such a it's such a weird script that she's like totally able to work with without ever going over the top no matter how over the top the movie gets and i think that's so much fun Mm -hmm. i want to see more of this from her which we're kind of getting in big little eyes i think that's a very campy like borderline campy performance but like grounded in a world of realism so um i don't know i just this is my ideal version of meryl and i i love this performance and the only reason why i would give it to her over Catherine zeta jones who's so so good what a year. What a good year for supporting actress. Yeah. You guys are out of your minds, but that I, I respect you both, I suppose. <laughs> um, all right. We're going to spotlight another category, as we always do. Um, and this year we're doing best song. Um, Lose Yourself from 8 Mile 1. Um, and the other nominees were I Move Chicago, which is not in the film. It's in over the credits, I think. Um, Burn It Blue from Frida. Um which was the lyrics were written by Julie Taymor, which is um, insane. Um, <laughs> the hands that built America by U two from gangs in New York. Um, Father and daughter by Paul Simon from the wild thornberries movie, which is uh, what a, what an incredible thing to say. <laughs> um, you are a particular thornberries movie um, uh, fan, right? Yeah. The wild thornberries was like a weirdly big show in my house. I, watched it a lot as a kid, even though I only kind of remember the story now. Um, but yeah, the movie um, had that Paul Simon song that just like, I could probably still sing the chorus if you like ask me to right now, because it was very simple. And I mean, it was effective enough as a, as like a 
nice little sweet song for fathers and daughters. Um, but yeah, I think that movie and that show have been like lost the time. So I'll I'll gladly live on with like the legacy of the wild thornberries. Is it uh, is it your choice to win that category? Are you still okay with uh, lose yourself from Eight Mile? Oh, I'll go with lose yourself. Lose yourself is fine. Um, I the other three yeah. songs are kind of terrible. Um, I like the the Chicago song is okay, I guess, but like the trend of writing an original song for a musical, um, so you can get an Oscar is like always a disaster, and I hate when they do that. And there's a reason it's in the credits of the movie and not any actual scene in the film. Um, and U2's original songs yeah. are like famously terrible, so um, I I'm fine with Eminem getting this weird Oscar for a song that like I think everybody kind of just accepts as being decent. <laughs> I mean, everybody knows it. Um, George, what are your thoughts on the, the category? Uh, so, in an episode of Utah and Utah, they go pretty depth on that Hands That Built America, uh, and they talk about U2's involvement on it, and it is pretty wild, and I never want to hear that song again. <laughs> because it's really not good. In addition, to, in addition to U2's normal discography not being particularly great, this is a real stinker. Even yeah by their bar um and eight mile is incredible i would put this winner up against like maybe any other year's winner it's so good it, i defy someone to put it on in the car and not jam along to it in fact i mean this might be some dumb urban legend that i heard but as uh, what i heard is that it is statistically the song playing in the most car crashes because, because people get so hyped up and they're jamming out to it so hard that they they aren't paying attention to the to the road, and uh, I get honestly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, it's it's sort of undeniable, and it like it's it's got such a great opening couple of notes, and and like so iconic, and it's just a damn fine song. You can't deny it. I like, despite the fact that you know he's never possibly been as good since, and and some of his like. He's got some issues now as as a as a fig public figure, but yeah, that song is fucking great, and I I do like that movie still sort of, although I haven't seen it in a couple of years. It's a good um, movie. It's okay. On, it's good. Uh, any last thoughts on song before we move on, guys? No, just that I didn't know it was a Paul Simon song for the Wild Thornberries movie. I love Paul Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I did have to read it like three times and be like, oh okay. I mean, I guess sure. <laughs> it sounds like a Paul Simon um, song. <laughs> It as soon as I started playing, I was like, "Oh yeah, it definitely does." Um, <laughs> all right, our last category, or last category, our last segment is for your consideration, um, where we highlight other, typically other movies or other performances that we think should have been nominated. Um, George, let's go with you. Uh, yeah, so I mentioned it a little bit before, but uh, I really like Twenty Fifth Hour. I think Ed Norton is one of the best actors working today. Um, I love him, and, and I think that he does a great performance in that movie, and um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is great in it as well. Um, it's just really good. I also think that uh, for cinematography, maybe some love should have gone to uh, Solaris, which is not as good as the original Russian version, but, but it's still pretty good, and it looks nice. Um, so those would be my two. Okay. Um, Matt, how about you? Yeah, um, there's a lot of movies that I really like from this year. I think George's pick of 25th Hour is a really, really good choice. Um, I love that movie. But I really wanted to focus on one movie from 2002, which is actually my favorite film from this year, and that's Minority Report, um, a movie that 
like the hill I will die on is that I think it's as good as like Spielberg's masterpieces like Jurassic Park and um, uh, Jaws and things like that. I this movie to me is just really well made action, a great story, but the thing that I that works that makes it a masterpiece in my mind is that the human drama in it is just as compelling as um, the action. And to steal something from like what Roger Ebert wrote about the movie when it came out, and it was his favorite film of 2002. Um, the, there's one shot in the film where Samantha Morton and Tom Cruise are hugging and the camera's like really tight on their faces as like they're whispering in each other's ears. And um, that to me is like just as dramatic and just as chilling and effective as like any great car chase, any great action scene that Steven Spielberg's ever directed in his career. It's such a well done moment. Um, same with Samantha Morton has this lengthy monologue in the film that I've watched on YouTube so many times in my life. Um, I love this movie. It's one that like I always just like will champion as like one of the best action films released in my lifetime. I think it's so 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 good. I would love to have seen it get any Oscar attention really. Um and also just as a quick side note, Steven Spielberg also directed Catch Me If You Can this year, which I love a lot too. So, you know, it's a great year for Steven Spielberg and a great year for me as a film goer. Yeah. Um I that leads perfectly into what I was going to say because I my big pick is Catch Me If You Can, which I think is like one of Spielberg's best films. And Minority Report is also great. That's my other like I think that film is phenomenal. I've, I've watched both of them dozens of times and think they're like pretty close to perfect. But mm-hmm. Catch Me If You Can is so stylish and like I think especially when you compare it to Leo's other performance this year in Gangs of New York, like is so much more confident and so much more layered and complex. And he's, he's really doing great work in this movie. Um, he's so charming, but also so fragile and, and interesting. And like the, the style of the movie is incredible. The opening credits are some of the best credits I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, the score is great. Um, there, there's dozens of great side characters. Christopher Walken definitely deserved that, that, um, that supporting actor nomination in my mind. Um, Jennifer, Jennifer Garner, my beloved Jennifer Garner appears in this um, very briefly as a, like as a prostitute. And and it's because Spielberg like watched alias and was like, I want her, which is one of my favorite things of all time. Um, Amy Adams is in it. Like it's undeniable how like enjoyable the film is. Um, and Tom Hanks is really good in it too. In a like in a role that, that he's basically started playing a lot in Spielberg's films after this point, but this is the first one. Um, but yeah, I, I can't believe catch me if you can didn't get more attention. Like it's really, really, really good. And I think a lot better than uh, some of the other films uh, like throughout that year. Like I can't believe gangs of New York got nominated over, over this, which mm-hmm. is so much better. And even, even minority report could have been nominated. So yeah, I don't know. I think that, I think it's just a, a really damn good, damn good film. Um, all right. Any any last thoughts, you guys, before we wrap up? Amy Adams. Amy Adams has braces. You catch me if you can, and I think that's just like one of the best things in in cinema. To be honest, <laughs> Amy Adams she's braces. So adorable. Isn't it? <laughs> what a Wait, good movie. I actually, I did think of something. Also, <laughs> shout out to Lucy Liu in Chicago. Uh, she has a great tiny role in it, and she's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, where she's she's the heiress that uh, is gonna steal Roxy's uh, heat. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she's really awesome in that tiny little role. Yeah, her screaming "Go to hell" is like 
you know, iconic. Yeah, she kicks like three guys in the balls. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's right. Right. In like two minutes of screen time, she's she's just emasculating as many men as possible. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, that, you know, I love that. Shout out to Lucy Liu. And she was already um, like right, kind so, of famous. So it's funny that like she took what? such – she was already kind of famous at the point that um, – like she did that one minute role in Chicago. So it's kind of funny that she just took that very tiny part, but she's so good. I love her. Yeah. She chews through that scenery, man. She's great. Um, all right. So this is, this is the la- our 2002 episode. This is actually the penultimate episode of what we're calling our first season. Um, Matt and I, particularly me desperately need a break from this, <laughs> this series um, to just rebuild our lives, reconnect with family members and friends. And um <laughs> Just sleep better. Um, so yeah, this our our next episode, uh, which is 1951, is going to be the last one for a couple months. Um, uh, no idea when we're coming back yet, but we'll let you know when we know because we're you know we'll we'll be doing our other Oscar pod, which is um, uh, you know the way too early Oscar pod. Um, but I am I am on the site. I'm sure I'll have something coming up soon. Um, I can't tell you. I, actually, it's probably. Um, I think that Tony Morrison documentary is finally coming out. And then I think we have some, I'm going to have some reprints from Tribeca wild roses. will will re up. And then, um, the quiet one about the Beatles, uh, will re up, uh, Matt, what do you have coming up? Um, you can see me on the site reviewing, um, big little lies this season. Um, and, um, this week, actually, Euphoria, the soon-to-be infamous HBO show that has apparently, according to Twitter, 30 penises. So um, oh, keep a look out for that. Oh, my lord. <laughs> it's going to be a big deal. Zendaya and 30 penises. <laughs> and you can follow me on Twitter. That's at appointment Matt, television to me. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> <laughs> um, George, would you like to follow that up? <laughs> Your, what you've got uh, coming up slash your social <laughs> sure uh well it's not coming up but very recently i watched every single godzilla movie yeah. and reviewed them so please check that out so that i didn't watch godzilla 98 for nothing um and uh what else yeah i'm on letterboxd as george hef and i'm on twitter as gerg hef that's g-e-r-g-h-e-f uh give me a follow i like to talk to people about movies as you can tell so let's talk no, he, you did God's work on that Godzilla piece. I have to say it was incredible. Um, all right, everyone. That uh, wraps up our 2002 episode. Thanks for listening.